Amen. If you would remain standing for the reading of God's Word, we're going to be reading the full chapter in Numbers 15 today. Buckle up. Let's read it. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land you are to inhabit, which I am giving you, and you offer to the Lord from the herd or from the flock a food offering or a burnt offering or a sacrifice to fulfill a vow or as a freewill offering or at your appointed feast to make a pleasing aroma to the Lord, then he who brings his offering shall offer to the Lord a grain offering of a tenth of an ephah of fine flour mixed with a quarter of a hen of oil. And you shall offer with the burnt offering or for the sacrifice a quarter of a hen of wine for the drink offering for each lamb. Or for a ram, you shall offer for a grain offering two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with a third of a hen of oil. And for the drink offering, you shall offer a third of a hen of wine, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And when you offer a bull as a burnt offering or a sacrifice to fulfill a vow or a peace offering to the Lord, then one shall offer with the bull a grain offering of three-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with half a hen of oil. And you shall offer for the drink offering half a hen of wine as a food offering, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Thus it, is, it shall be done for each bull or ram or for each lamb or young goat. As many of you as you offer, you shall do so with each one, as many as there are. Every native Israelite shall do these things in this way, in offering a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And if a stranger is sojourning with you or anyone is living permanently among you and he wishes to offer a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord, he shall do as you do. For the assembly, for the assembly there, there shall be one statute for you and for the stranger who sojourns with you, a statute forever throughout your generations. You and the sojourner shall be alike before the Lord. One law and one rule shall be for you and for the stranger who sojourns with you. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land to which I bring you, and when you eat of the bread of the land, you, you shall present a contribution to the Lord. On the first of your dough, you shall present a loaf as a contribution, like a contribution from the threshing floor. So shall you present it. Some of the, of the first of your dough you shall give to the Lord as a contribution throughout your generations. But if you sin unintentionally and do not observe all these commandments, that the Lord has spoken to Moses, all that the Lord has commanded you by Moses from the day that the Lord gave commandment and onward throughout your generations, then if it was done unintentionally without the knowledge of the congregation, all the congregation shall offer one bull from the herd of the burnt offering, a pleasing aroma to the Lord with its grain offering and its drink offering according to the rule, uh, the one male goat for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for all the congregation of the people of Israel, and they shall be forgiven, because it was a mistake. And they have brought their offering, a food offering to the Lord, and their sin offering before the Lord for their mistake. And all the congregation of the people of Israel shall be forgiven. The stranger who sojourns among them, because the whole population was involved in the mistake. And the stranger who sojourns among them, because the whole population was involved in the mistake. If one person sins unintentionally, he shall offer a female goat, a year old for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement before the Lord for the person who makes a mistake when he sins unintentionally to make atonement for him, and he shall be forgiven. 
you shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally for him who is native among the people of Israel and for the stranger who sojourns among them. But the person who does anything with a high hand, whether he is native or a sojourner, reviles the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from among his people because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment. That person shall be utterly cut off, his iniquity shall be on him. While the people of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. And those who found him gathering sticks brought him to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation. They put him in custody because it had not been made clear what should be done to him. And the Lord said to Moses, the man shall be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. And all the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him to death with stones as the Lord commanded him. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and to put a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner. And it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord to do them, not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which you are inclined to whore after. So you shall remember and do all my commandments and be holy to your God. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord, your God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, and in context, this was given uh, in the middle of Numbers. The Numbers is a book that alternates between law and narrative, law and narrative, law and narrative. Uh, you see in the first 10 chapters that there was preparation for the journey to the promised land. And then you have, the, in the 11 through 14, the journey to the promised land began, and it went colossally sideways. Uh, the people grumbled from the outset. They were unhappy with the leadership. They were unhappy with the provisions of God. They wanted to go back, and they essentially nullified God's promises and wanted to uh, elect a new leader and head back to Egypt. So it had not been smooth. Uh, it had been rocky for some and fatal for some. In the very previous verses, uh, in the light of the spies' report, and that there's giants in the land, and the cities are well fortified, and there's no way we can go into that land because uh, they will kill us. Let's go away, and let's stone Moses and, and elect a new leader. Joshua and Caleb stand strong, uh, convince the people, ultimately with God's help, when his presence shows up and, and thunders that they have sinned, and they ask for forgiveness. Moses asks for forgiveness, and God forgives the people. Yes? So then the people launch out into an ill-advised, sort of making themselves right you know, project. They're going to go into the land and take the land. They're going to go fight the Canaanites, and they get slaughtered. They get run out of there at Hormah, and that's the very last words we see. They have, they have had a fatal colossal mistake because the presence of the Lord and Moses do not go with the people uh, and the ark doesn't go with the people and they go out and get killed. Uh, so you got to be questioning, you know, it's such a military defeat uh, and that uh, the, the news that all those who were counted in the census are going to die in the next 40 years, uh, that things are not going well uh, and that, that you want some reassurance. Uh, so the, the grace of God is still active though the God who uh, has been sinned against has forgiven 
And he's made promises, and he reaffirms his promise to, that, he's, that he's made to Abraham that he's going to keep that by bringing that children, the children who the, the majority said would become prey in the land. No, 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 they're going to possess the land. They're going to take the land in 40 years after the shepherding in the wilderness is over and the, and the generation who's been counted dies. So reassurance is needed, and this is what, the, uh, what must be given. Uh, this is not the kind of reassurance that the world looks for. The world would never look to this chapter and be like, man, this is, this is so encouraging. This is what I need. No, the, the world says, hey, look within yourself. Uh, think about all, you know, how strong you are. Look to yourself. Uh, not look to the sovereign God. What this communicates is the sovereignty of God. You notice in the very beginning it says, and the Lord spoke to Moses. All these things he should tell the people. He, he declares what it is. He says that in verse 1, he says that in 17, and also down uh, about the Sabbath breaker in the 35th verse, the same phrase is used, the Lord spoke to Moses. God speaks and he acts. He declares that this Sabbath breaker should be stoned. He tells them what to wear. He tells them what they're going to do with all the stuff he's going to give them. So what, the, what, is it, what does he say there that they need to hear? We're going to look at today, and it's really gospel. Let me begin with a story here as you think about re the need for reassurance. I was in the drive-through line at McDonald's, uh, of all places, and uh, in the middle of the day, 1 o'clock in the, in the afternoon. And, and if you know how this works, uh, on the front of McDonald's, the drive-through line comes around and goes all the way around to the back of the building to get your food. And there's two lanes, and they converge, and they merge together into one lane. Well, behind McDonald's, on the, on the side there, uh, there, there's the drive-through lanes as it merges, there's very little space to get through, especially if someone's parked in that area. And so there was a landscaping truck uh, with a trailer there uh, that was parked there, and it made getting around very difficult if you're, if you're not in the drive-through line. So you say you've got to go around to get out, but you, can't, you might be blocked. Now, I was able to navigate my truck through this tight window because I have NASCAR skills, I guess. I don't know what it is. But I was able to get through. As I'm in the line, a, a white Hyundai is in front of me, and, and this white Hyundai has ordered the food and pulls forward. And as, as the white Hyundai is waiting, suddenly a blue car comes up. And I evidently can't get through. It's, it's like the white car may be a little bit too far over. And so I see this kind of happening. And this all takes place in like five to ten seconds. No more, no less. Eventually, white Hyundai moves forward. And I, and I kind of wave the blue car on because if I move, then it can't move. So blue car goes through. All of a sudden, I hear profanity after profanity, lace profanity, yelling out the blue car's window at the white Hyundai. You won't believe it. I, I look, I watch, the, I watch the, the, the white car, look at the white car, and the white car, there's a lady driving, and, she, and she's like, what did, what did I do? She's completely flabbergasted as to what she has, no, she's oblivious to the situation. She might have been blocking this person. So the blue car storms out of there when it gets free, right? And I, and I look and if you don't know this, you, you ought to know this. When you're behind a car in a drive-thru, you can spy on the car in front of you by looking in the rearview mirror, right? So look and see the woman's face. She's tearing up. She's, she's collapsing. She's crumbling. She's been yelled at, berated, and destroyed by this blue car uh, mean lady, right? I watch her. I, watch, I, I wanted to get out and hug her, you know, but you can't. You're, you're locked in this drive-thru situation. And that'd be weird. But, but nonetheless, she, she's, her face is collapsing. 
I can see her shaking her head. She can't believe this happened. She's like, did I do something? Maybe she's just, she's completely confused. I ask you, guys, which one of those cars, which one of those women needed the gospel that day? The answer is both, of course. Not just the bad guy, the good guy, or the one, everybody needs the gospel, essentially. Um, The guy who is cursing, the guy who is offended, the guy who's collapsing, we all need the gospel. We all need the gospel. We don't need to look inside ourselves, and we don't need to just be nicer people and get along better. That's what the world thinks, is if we just learn better and we work harder, we're going to get along, it's going to be a better world, and that's the church can get involved in that too and think, well, we just need to make things real nicer, you know, and and make this world a nicer place, you know, uh, where everybody feels good. You know, well, that's simply not the case. I mean, that is not going to make things better. If anything, we ought to be really good right now because we have lots of years of education and, and messaging about that. Be nicer. The church is even taking that up. Like, be like Jesus, not like, be kind, not like all the baggage. Like, we got overwhelming messages to be better and to work harder at that. It does not change things. You can't fix things without the Lord's work. And so, What's going to happen here is this, the Lord is going to tell us what's going to happen in 40 years to encourage people who are absolutely discouraged. They have seen people die that they love. They are wandering in a barren wasteland. They don't have anything. Uh, they have been previously slaves. Uh, they are, they've experienced miracles and seen signs, but they have doubted God, and they're for afraid of him. So he speaks to Moses, the Lord does, and he tells them in quite amount of detail uh, further elaborations on the finer points of Leviticus 4. And you think, how is that encouraging? Very encouraging. Look at, look at the first 21 verses there in the text. That's elaborations on the, on the holiness codes, uh, or the, the, I mean, I'm sorry, the sacrificial codes in Leviticus 1 through 7, which is part of the commandments that God's given uh, since he started giving commandments since Exodus 19, he set the people free from Egypt, and he meets with them at Mount Sinai and starts to declare his will for them. And it begins with, no one relates to God apart from his binding himself to them by blood. Okay? That is how you're going to relate to God and have fellowship with him through blood, through offerings, through these mixes of offerings. And so he's going to elaborate on those offerings with the addition of a, of a wine offering and uh, these, the grain, how the, how the cereal, the food offerings work, how do you mix them up, what are the proportions. If you give a bigger animal, you've got to give more. And you see that, that on and on and on it goes. And this applies to not just the natives, but also the sojourners, the people who, who have not from this people, but have joined the people. And he's speaking ahead into the future and saying, there's going to be people who are not ethnically descended from Abraham who are going to be part of this people, and they're going to do the same things that you're going to do. Don't withhold this from anybody. This is the situation. This is what everyone needs to be doing is these offerings for peace offerings, guilt offerings, and then so on and so forth. Then you go down to 22. It's about unintentional sins. If we don't, if we don't even know we're sinning as a corporate group, in the first paragraph of the 26 and 27, you see for individuals, but it says there at the end of that 30, if a person does things with a high hand, meaning intentionally rebellious against God, then that is not redeemable. He should be cut off from the people, right? He should, he's despised the word of God, broken his commandment, and he should be utterly cut off. Iniquity should be on him. That's a, that's a harsh warning. So you've got 
you've got the Lord who provides these sacrifices that are pleasing aromas to him, offering up atonement or covering, right? You've got this, this warning of high-handed rebellious sin. Why is this important? Well, we, their history is high-handed rebellious sin. This is the spies. This is the majority uh, report we saw in, in, in the 14th chapter. People look for themselves and see, I don't think God can do this. Let's go back our own way. Let's go our different way. We're not going to follow God's way. High-handed sin will lead to being cut off. You see an example of high-handed sin with a Sabbath breaker. And you see eventually how, I mean, God takes his word seriously. This Sabbath thing is a big deal. It's not just a minor factor. This is the very sign that God gives to set them apart in Deuteronomy 5.15, which explicitly mentions his redemption. Because of his redemption of them, they are to keep this day holy. And so if they reject it, it's like they're rejecting the Lord. Uh, so, so you see this, that they put him in custody and they don't stone him until God tells them exactly how to do it. And it's very harsh. You're talking about a multitude of people hurling stones down on someone's head, right? Uh, and it, it's, to, it's to demonstrate that this person has sinned against the whole community. The whole community is raining down judgment on them from God, authorized by God. It's a very serious act. So you see the Sabbath breaker is executed. And you see this uh, very unusual practice that God tells him to put on tassels. And he reaffirms his covenant promises. So that's, a, that's an overview of this, okay? It's an overview of this. And, and what I think this is helpful for is it gives us really what I think is a four-point outline on what the gospel is for us, right? So first thing you got to know is that God is faithful to his word. Uh, you look at the first wor- verses there. Look at one and two. Uh, it's like uh, he, God moves seamlessly from... Uh, the verse 45 of the previous chapter, the Amalekites and the Canaanites lived on the country down there and defeated them and pursued them. Uh, they're being judged, right? To the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to them, the people of Israel, and say to them, when you come into the land, you are to inhabit which I'm giving you. When you come into the land, not if, but when. God explicitly says he is going to keep his word that he promised to them, to Abraham, their forefather, and Isaac and Jacob. I'm giving you this land. When you come to the land that I'm giving you, you're going to inhabit it that I'm giving. He also implicitly implies blessings to them because they're going to have such an overabundance of stuff in this land. It's, and they've seen the, four, the first fruits brought back. It took two people to carry all this beautiful fruit from the land that they could visibly touch and see and taste from the land, how wonderful it is, that's going to be theirs in abundance. And they're going to be able to to make wine with that and have vineyards. And they're going to have all this opportunity to have enough wine to start giving it to sacrifices daily. You got the bread sacrifice. I didn't even mention the bread sacrifice. Look, every time they made bread, they would give the first fruits or the the first, uh, they'd make a loaf or a cake and give it to the the priest to to feed the priest because the priest doesn't have an inheritance and they're relying upon uh, the gifts and the offerings. So perpetually they're giving bread to the priest. Interestingly enough, after uh, the uh, uh, re- you know, return from exile eventually, uh, women uh, in, in their kitchens who were cooking and men uh, would, would uh, take, some, take the first bread and throw it, uh, throw it into the fire as an offering because the temple wasn't available. So they would just sort of throw the, throw the first piece of bread into the offering to keep this sort of as, as best they could. Without an, off, without a, an opportunity to, to offer sacrifices, they just throw bread in the fire as their offering to make it a, an altar, and a, and a, to, so to speak, there in the kitchen. So as you think about that, this is the Lord, uh, and he's proclaiming a kingdom. Uh, and that's what the woman, the woman, and the other woman, and all of us need is a kingdom. We need a king. We need someone who can redeem us from this mess and from ourselves. Uh, you know, and so... 
And we don't, we don't need to be shielded from unkind words. Uh, we don't need to only hear nice words. Uh, we don't need to resolutely and stoically reject the effects of those words uh, and resolve to just be kind and happy all the time. Uh, no, we live in any a, in a fallen world uh, impacted by sin and misery. And what we need is the same as those people there and the same as these people needed now is a Lord. We need a king and a kingdom. And that's what he promises to them. As Jesus preached in all the places and walked uh, on the places he walked on the earth, in, in one particular place I want to highlight, Matthew 9, 35, it says that Jesus went through the cities and villages, all of them, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he ha- said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So, so you got people who are afflicted, people who are helpless and need compassion. What did Jesus do? He proclaimed to them the gospel of the kingdom, and he said to them to pray earnestly for more people to be sent to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. What God is doing to a people in need of reassurance in Numbers 15 is offering up a vision of the kingdom. It's going to be wonderful. You're going to be giving, uh, you're going to have so much in that time that I'm going to give you. You're going to be giving all these sacrifices, and I'm going to be your God, and you're going to be my people, and it's going to be through blood, and it's going to be, and you're going to have tassels on you, you're going to be set apart. You're going to be get, having so much bread, you're going to give to me uh, first of that. There's going to be uh, no needs there, no wants. You're going to have all that you need, and that's what, that's, uh, so he's, he's preaching the gospel of the kingdom pictured in this uh, old covenant scenario, uh, and as you, and you see there, Jesus proclaims that gospel of the kingdom to the cities, to the villages in Matthew 9, has compassion on them. What the broken lady needs, what the, what the cursing lady needs is no different. We need to understand we're both sheep expressing our helplessness in different ways. Expressing our helplessness in different ways. Whether or not we're, we're, we're evilly uh, cursing others or we're broken by the curses against us, uh, we are uh, projecting our heavy, our heavy needlessness, our uh, neediness uh, and helplessness, either lashing out or by crumbling. Uh, so the Lord here proclaims the kingdom in Matthew 9 and then instructs them to pray earnestly. Now, if Jesus tells you to pray for something, you should probably do it. And when he, when he qualifies that with earnestly, you should doubly do it, right? He says to pray earnestly for the Lord to send out workers, Right? Why? What are these workers going to do? The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. They're going to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. That's their job. That's what the world needs, the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus elsewhere says that preaching the gospel of the kingdom will be the thing that precedes the end of time, that the time we're in is the preaching of the gospel to all nations, the gospel of the kingdom, and then the end will come in Matthew 24, 14. So how does God preach the gospel in this particular context? And the answer is he begins with he's faithful. The most important truth that we can know is who God is and what has he said and will he be faithful to his word. Now, look at God, how he frames it. These laws are for life in the land, still 40 years away, but it's as good as accomplished in God's eyes because it's his word. He has said it's going to be happening and it will happen. It's as good as done because God says it. And that ought to be instructive to us that the Lord can speak in those terms because none of his words will fail. His words always accomplish His purposes. So we can have a supreme trust that He is faithful. That's the beginning point. 
And so when he gives the gospel, it will do its work uh, that he's given it to do. When he gives his promises, it will happen. God's word will be established and finished. Let's be clear about something. The original hearers of the words spoken to Moses in Numbers 15 did not have an easy life. It was challenging, but it was good. They were uprooted from terrible slavery and oppression by God and into this journeying life. In a similar way, you and I have been, as believers, have been set free from slavery to sin, but we're journeying. We're not there yet. We, have, we are oppressed by our own sin still within us. The devil, the world, all the things that we encounter, the, our own sin, which is messing things up. So we've got to remember that the key thing is that God remembers his covenant with Abraham. He's faithful over hundreds of years to be faithful to promises he's made in the past, and he will keep those promises. Uh, and that's interesting, isn't it, think about God remembering something, right? God remembers his word. How is that? When you think of remembering something, uh, you know, that, that word in Hebrew is transliterated or, or, or pronounced out to remember, zakar. Now, when I was in seminary, I was learning that, that, that phrase that, or that, that word, zakar, which is used all over the Bible. At the time I was in seminary, there's a movie made called Dude, Where's My Car? Right? And it's like, it's like, it's like I've lost my car because I was on drugs or something is the idea there in that, in that movie. These guys can't find their car. So the name, it's Dude, Where's My Car? Zakar is remember. I can't remember where my car is. Now, that's different. <laughs> it's not recalling something that you might have known previously. Uh, it's, com- it's not something coming to mind. That's, that's what we think of, we typically think of remember. Remember where I left my car. What God's doing is acting. He's doing in accordance with his word, what he said. Uh, he's, it's not like he forgot it. Now he's re- reestablishing it. He is acting in his time to, to, the, to the absolute uh, ends that he has set for. Uh, remembering doesn't mean what it means today. It means to use whatever means necessary to make real and present what is real uh, in the past and the future. And, and on, it's, it's making true what is real in God's decrees. Remembering is what he's doing. It's word that God remembered there. Good news is that God remembers his people. That's the first thing, and he is faithful to do all he's done. When we pray, we can pray on this basis after the example that Moses gave. In Exodus 32, 13, Moses prays to God and says, remember, Zakar, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by yourself and said to them. Now, he's just saying, remember, you swore this. You promised. Remember what you said to Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. You said, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised, I will, be, I will give your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. We say, I'm a baptized man. I'm looking to you. You've declared me to be righteous. Uh, you've declared that you will finish every good work that you began. You've declared to me to be uh, you know, more than a conqueror. You, you've declared your love for me. Uh, and, and, I, and I ask on the basis of those, con- of, those, of those promises, on the basis of those to remember me. We pray according to his steadfast love as we saw last week. We pray and ask him to remember his oaths. To act. To act. We ask him to act when we ask him to remember Act in light of those. Uh, in, in Exodus 6, uh, when he speaks of going to redeem the people out of Egypt, he says, I have remembered my covenant. 
Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of Egypt and, and deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I have remembered my covenant. Okay? The word there, the good news is God remembers his people. Not that we remember him, but that God remembers his people. That is the key thing, is God remembers us. But who are these people that he remembers? The second point is look at who they are. Uh, we might often be oblivious to who we are, right? We might have very little self-awareness. But at the very beginning of this text, we are struck with who we are. We relate to God on the basis of bonds from blood, sacrifices, peace offerings, guilt offerings, these fire offerings. That, that, that the sacrifice had to be consumed uh, and burned um, to, to point to the, the, the sinfulness of the people and the, and the need to be uh, a sacrifice or substitute to be consumed that we might have fellowship and peace with God and atonement, that we might be pleasing to God. There had to be a lamb consumed for us. That's who we are. Look at the, uh, the, the unawareness of this and the uh, un unintentional sins. You look at, uh, at Uzzah, right? Uh, who, who, in, who is carry, helping carry the ark back to Jerusalem. And, and, they, and they've got the ark positioned on a cart uh, being pulled by an animal. And the animal stumbles, the cart, the, the cart starts to tip, and the, the ark of the covenant starts to, to swing off and, and fall into the dirt. And so the man tries to steady the ark of the covenant and touches it. Now God's revealed will says no man should touch the ark, right? So though maybe an unintentional, well-intentioned even action, instinctual even, becomes a sin. Sort of what we're talking about here. Uh, we can unintentionally uh, go against God's revealed will. Maybe we don't know what God's word says on a certain matter. Maybe it's been obscured to us. And so we're, we're transgressing God's word or teaching others to do so. And so we want to be uh, aware that we're not always thinking rightly uh, and acting correctly. Uh, that's made clear in this. Is this the people who God remembers and loves? Is the people who are brought into relationship by blood and who are intentionally and unintentionally sinning against him? Uh, day after day, and must be redeemed by a sacrifice, right? This is who they are. We must remember that the very first thing that Jesus says on the Sermon on the Mount is that blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God, or kingdom of heaven, right? The, the poor in spirit. We have to understand that we have nothing in us that would commend us to God. We are poor in spirit. We remember that we are not the people who always do the right things. We are the people that God remembers, right? We are not the people that always do the right thing. We're the people that God remembers. It's not just that we're poor, poverty-wise. We're poor in spirit. Spiritually speaking, we have nothing to boast about. We have to empty out everything we could ever boast about, all of our good works, and say they are like filthy rags. They do not get us anywhere with God. Anything we could boast about, empty it out and say, I, can, I count it refuse for the sake of Christ, as Paul does in Philippians 3. We have to understand, we, and, until we are emptied out as a cup, we cannot be filled. We must empty ourselves of all boasting and all pride, spiritually speaking, and confess we are poor and go to Jesus, right? This is like the guy who, who reaches out, or the woman who reaches out to touch the, the very tassels, the very the corner of Jesus' garment to be healed. This is who we are. We can't, we're not even uh, qualified enough to touch him. Uh, we're not even worthy enough. We're unclean. And we must go peripherally and obliquely to just reach out and, and, and graze him as, as the, the corner of his garment is going by. And he looks at that person and says, your faith has healed you. 
That's what we are. We are people at best able to graze him. Uh, we are not uh, worthy of being uh, healed by him. And it's that very faith of poor in spirit, uh, understanding we are nobodies, unworthy that the Lord commends is righteous. Uh, the poor in spirit will inherit the kingdom of heaven. Uh, it means that to be truly a Christian is that we rely on nothing we have, not our natural birth, not our education, nothing we've accomplished, our works. Uh, we cling simply to the cross. Empty, homeless, naked, vile, he is the all-sufficient one. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. So as you look at uh, that uh, second point there, we remember who we are. We're sinners. And then the third point, we have a great Savior. We have a great Savior who is uh, the one who will be brought and sacrificed for us. This is uh, when John the Baptist sees Jesus and lays eyes on him for the first time in John 1, 27. He says, finally, the Lamb of God, behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. We are set free. And this is what the very, the very thing uh, that, is, that is pictured in these offerings, burnt offerings, is embodied in, in realizing Christ. That we, we have broken the Sabbath day, right? We deserve to be uh, cursed, to be put out of the camp. Uh, Jeremiah 17, 27 says, If you not, do not listen to me to keep the Sabbath day holy and not bear the burden and enter the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, and I'll kindle a fire, kindle a fire in its gates and shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem and shall not be quenched. Jerusalem was destroyed for breaking the Sabbath. That's what happened. This man was broken for breaking the Sabbath. We've all broken the Sabbath. None of us have remembered the Sabbath day and kept it holy. Um, we deserve everything that's coming on this guy, but Jesus takes it for us. And finally, we see that we have a new calling. We have a reaffirmation of who God initially says these people are. At Exodus 19, when he begins to speak to the people, he says in verse 6, You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of, of, of Israel. So this gospel, we look at God's faithful. We're sinners. We have a great Savior in Christ who is faithful for us. And he gives us a new calling. These are people who are sinful. And he says, you're going to go into the land. You're going to have these garments, these outer garments you're going to wear. And you're going to put tassels on them. And you're going to have this blue cord that's going to be in there. And the sign of blue uh, in the ancient Near Eastern world was a sign of royalty and also a sign of the priesthood, the kingdom of priests, a holy nation. You're going to wear these, this cord to remind you to keep the commandments of the Lord. And you're going to also be set apart by them. So who's going to see you? Well, all these other people that live there. They're going to see that you are God's people. You're set apart. And you are going to be reminded to keep these commandments because you are my people and I will be your God you have a new calling. These tassels are constant physical reminders of their special relationship by God's grace. Outward signs of a covenant between them and God. As you look at this, you see explicitly that this blue was used on the high priest's uniform. This blue, uh, blue cloth was what they wrapped the tabernacle uh, holy, holy pieces in and, and transported them. Uh, the curtains were adorned with blue. Uh, it's, the, it's, the, it's the king's color, the king of kings. You're the king's people. This is a kingdom you're in. This is your fundamental identity. You have to understand you're not the nice people of the world. You are the kingdom of God. You're not the, uh, the, right, the, the, the good people. You're the kingdom of God people. That's who you are. Your first and foremost allegiance is to the king. 
you turn from looking at things in your own eyes, as it's mentioned explicitly in this text, and trust and remember the words of God, His laws, as it says in 37 through 41. So what do we do now? Do we wear tassels? Of course, we do not. We do not wear tassels. We do not wear outer garments with tassels on them, right? That would be absurd, wouldn't it? Or would it? Shouldn't we obey these things? Isn't this on for the generations? What are we doing not wearing tassels like that, that have blue cords in them? What is going on here? Why do we not do this now? Well, you are a part of a kingdom that has come in Christ. He has sent the Spirit, and He's given a church. He has given a, a kingdom purpose to you. You are a disciple of kingdom servants, and you follow this king, and you obey his word and his law. This has not changed, but the administration of it has certainly changed. You're not a unified ethnic people uh, living in a nation with a, with a, with a, a king uh, that is underneath the Lord here, an earthly king, with a tabernacle. You are a people of all nations, a people of all, of all generations, uh, a visible and an invisible church. You are a cosmic people, a kingdom of, of God that, that extends beyond your own physical presence. And you are truly united to Christ in the heavenly places. So wearing tassels just doesn't get at it. Wearing tassels doesn't communicate who you are. Being baptized in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit does, though. How will they know you now if you don't wear tassels? How are people going to know? How are you going to know yourself? Jesus answers that question in one place. John 13, 35, among many. He says, by this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. So we see the king, we see the kingdom, we see our fellow kingdom citizens, our brothers and sisters, families, and we love them. People will see the kingdom, in, and we are the disciples, in that we pray for Benjamin, that we love Benjamin, that we rejoice in Laney's graduation, that we serve one another, that we spend time in each other's homes and care for one another in ways that defy imagination, that the world thinks of loving the people closest to them, family people, maybe spouses, uh, people that like them. We love our enemies. We love uh, people that we don't even barely know, uh, but we love them and provide for them. When there's needs, we grieve and we care deeply for those who've lost uh, people. People are walking through life not caring about anybody, and our hearts are burdened and broken every day for the people we care about, the people we love that are in our, in our church community that we're identified with and united to in Christ all day after day. They will know us by our love for one another, not our tassels. Pray, he prays, Jesus prays for that to come true. And the gospel is proclaimed there. And, and, and what's called... Uh, for us is to, or our calling for us is to pray for more laborers to be sent out, to make this gospel of the kingdom known, because the, this is what the world greatly needs, the gospel of the kingdom. There is no hope for us if we ignore the kingdom. If people ignore the kingdom, there is no hope for any of us. The kingdom must be proclaimed, the, the gospel of the kingdom. And so we pray for more laborers to be sent out. And furthermore, we don't just pray, we do the work. We're the answer to the prayer. Somebody's been praying, and you are the answer to that prayer. You are a laborer for the kingdom of God. You proclaim, our church proclaims, but we all individually proclaim one to another, to our neighbors, to our people, to our family. Let's pray.